Hello everyone, I'm Sarah Hart, I'm the Gresham Professor of Geometry and welcome to my lecture on where mathematical symbols come from. Now in 1977, the Voyager space probe was launched and on that probe there was a golden record. It contained information about our human civilization, the planet Earth, who we are, where we are, and cultural artifacts like music from Bach and other composers, the human voice, and all sorts of wonderful things on this record. There were over 100 pictures as well. The idea was this probe was going to pass through our solar system and then out into wider space, into the galaxy. And one day, maybe an alien civilization would find it, and they'd want to know who are the people who have created this, this, this space probe. Now, one of the important things we wanted to communicate with that was where we are, what we look like, but where we are and what our planet is like. But how do you actually communicate with aliens? They don't know what symbols we use. They don't know how we write. They don't know what it would mean to say we're 93 million miles from our sun. What's a mile? We don't have this common language. So the first job, really, is to tell the aliens about how we describe numbers. We're going to give them some numbers. And this picture was one of the pictures on the golden record. It was the third picture. And it gives a lot of information about our number systems, lots of symbols. And you can see on that picture how it was described what, what our numbers are. So to begin with, for the first few numbers, you've got some blobs here. One blob, that's one. So there's a symbol for one. Two is two. Three is three, and so on. What are these vertical and horizontal lines? They are the binary representations of those numbers. So in binary, of course, we write normally we would use ones and zeros, but this is our base two that you know computers use. Using ones and zeros when you're at the same time trying to define ones and zeros, though, is not a sensible idea, hence the, the vertical and horizontal lines. So our extraterrestrials looking at this, they've got lots of clues to help them understand what the first few numbers are. So this symbol, what's this? Well, it's 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 the thing that's five blobs, so that's what these earthlings must be using for the number five. Then the numbers carry on. We drop the, the little blobs after a while, and then you get to the first examples of our place uh, value notation that we use. So this one and a zero, that means one lot of ten and no units, of course, as we know. And there's a couple more examples over in the right-hand side of the picture of that happening for 12 and 24. Then you get an explanation of this exponential notation. So 100 is 10 squared, it's 10 times 10, and so we've got some examples of that. And then what else is defined? Addition, some examples of addition, so that our extraterrestrial friends can, can understand what we mean by that. We've got some fractions shown and some multiplication. And with those basic building blocks of symbols, then the numbers that are needed to be communicated can be expressed. And units are defined in terms of things that the aliens will know. So uh, the wavelength of light, the size of hydrogen atoms, something like that. We don't write in miles. One thing to mention here, fractions are being used. No decimal points appear on the golden record. I suspect that's because a little dot somewhere could easily be assumed to be you know, a, a damage to the, to the record or something like that, uh, a flaw in the record. And so that's why fractions are sort of safer to use in this context. Now, why have I shown you this picture? Well, it's to make the point that you know, our putative alien civilization, it's going to have numbers, it's going to have its own symbols for numbers and for mathematical terms like addition and multiplication. They're different from ours, but the underlying mathematics is, of course, the same, right? We still count one, two, three, four, five, six in whatever language and whatever symbols we use. So this lecture is about mathematical symbols and notation, but 
you might very well ask, why does, why does it matter? Surely the underlying mathematics is all going to be the same. And the answer to that is yes, but. The but is that it's people, it's human, you know, conscious beings doing mathematics. And the choice of notation and symbols that we make can actually really influence what mathematics we do. Some notational choices almost prevent us from making progress, you know, inadvertently, while others allow us, they open pathways that we may not have seen before, and they allow us to make more progress. And we'll see examples of that as we go along. But before we do plunge in and start talking about, you know, where our number symbols came from, there's another symbol on this slide that we haven't discussed yet. It's one that seems so fundamental and basic to mathematics that we perhaps haven't even noticed it being used. It's just implicit almost. But this symbol was invented uh, by a man in Tudor Britain. He was born in the little town of Tenby in Wales in about 1510. His name was Robert Record, and he invented the equal sign. And that equal sign, which you might just think it's just part of mathematics, we could never know who could have thought of that. It's just such a basic thing. That was invented, um, yes, by Robert Record in 1557. And now, you know, when I think about the Voyager space probe, which has left the solar system by now, on that record, in that, in that little piece of machinery out in space, there is a symbol that was invented in Tudor Britain all those years ago and is now has left our solar system. You know, I love that thought. Lots of these other symbols we'll discuss along the way and, and their origins. Um, one other thing that we'll, we'll talk about as well as we go is, if you like, language, or interested in language at all, the language of these mathematical notations and symbols can tell us the path that they have traced through different cultures on, on our planet. Um, some things have started, you know, over in India and then moved via the Arab world and come into the Western world. And there's all sorts of wonderful stories that we can find, sort of do a bit of mathematical archaeology to see ideas travelling across the world. And that's a very appealing concept. Okay, so let's get started then and talk about numbers. Now, ever since writing has existed, mathematical writing has existed. This is a Babylonian tablet, uh, sort of middle Babylonian, about 3,000 years old. And on this tablet, clay tablet, you would write with a stylus making marks. And you can see there are some marks here. And these are numbers. So there's two columns of numbers. And this is a bit hard to see on the slide what, the, what these symbols actually are. So I've redrawn them and, and made them a bit bigger. So this is the top half of the tablet. This is the bottom half. There is a reverse as well that takes this uh, table a bit further but this is enough information already. We can see this, this first column. If you just sort of, you know, with a bit of detective work, we can see this looks like one, two, three. You've got three marks, four marks, five marks, and so on and so on. This seems to be just you know, the numbers, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. It gets a bit hard by the time you get to something like seven. You have to be perhaps starting to count the number of little marks, so maybe that's not quite efficient. And then we get eight, nine. Oh, and then there's something different. And that's something different if we think about, you know, fingers, one, two, three, four. By the time we have ten fingers, that's two hands. And so probably this symbol here is kind of looking like two hands together because it's ten fingers. So that's ten and then we carry on 11, 12, and so on. That's all very nice. What about the second column? What, what is being recorded there? Well, we can count up here. There are nine little wedges. So one corresponds to nine. And two, what's this? It's a 10. And then there's eight little wedges. So 10 and 8, 18. So two goes with 18. If you look at the next one, three, that looks like 27. Four, 36. 
this is the nine times table written on a 3,000-year-old tablet, the nine times table. It's all great. And now we can see at the bottom of this column here, and we see something that is telling us about the Babylonian method of writing numbers, because this is for wedge shapes. But it's not the number, can't be the number four. From context, it ought to be seven times nine, which is 63. And that's what it is. The Babylonians used a base 60 mathematical writing system. So we have a base 10 system. We write tens and hundreds and powers of 10 like that. They had 60s. So this means 60, then they leave a little space, and then three. So it means 63, which is what it ought to mean from the context. So this is a, you know, a quite efficient way of writing, but there are some problems with it. One problem is, how do you, how do you just write the number 60? Because you can't leave a space because there's nothing else that goes after it. So if you just see a wedge on its own, you have to kind of work out from context whether that's the number one or the number 60. So this is sort of problematic um, with this system. However, it was a useful system and lasted a long time. Let's look at another one or two uh, early number systems. So what were the ancient Egyptians doing? Well, they didn't have to worry about, uh, can I see a space or is there a space? What's going on? Um, because they had a symbol for every power of 10. And then you just have as many of those as you needed. So here are some of the symbols. And here's an example there on the slide at the top. You can see uh, one lotus flower, that's 1,000. Two coiled ropes, 200. Uh, three bent sticks, that's 30. And four straight sticks, that's four. So that number there is 1,234. Because there was a different symbol for each power of 10, you didn't have to worry about leaving spaces or things. There wasn't an ambiguity between... So the next two uh, ancient Egyptian numbers here, you've got four pointing fingers. That, that's 40,000. And then you've got... You haven't got any 1,000s, but you've got some hundreds. There are nine coiled ropes there, if I've done it right. So that's 40,090... No, it's 40,905, right? You don't have to worry about the missing thousands because you just don't see a lotus flower symbol, so there aren't any. The number on the bottom, completely obviously a different number, that has got 495. So they can't be confused, you have different symbols. This is, again, it's, it's an okay solution, um, but it's quite unwieldy for big numbers, and you do have to often stop and count how many of each little symbol there are. So that's the ancient Egyptian system. Um, there were lots of different systems. I'm just mentioning a few. Um, the ancient Chinese system had powers of 10, but it solved the problem of counting lots of little symbols by um, also incorporating a different symbol for each number, 1 to 9. So if you wanted 400, you'd write your symbol for 4 and then your symbol for 100. Ancient Greece. Now, this wasn't quite the first system they developed, but this alphabetic system... Uh, was quite an ingenious way of writing, at least for small numbers. It was efficient because there was uh, a number from one up to nine. They were just the first nine digits of the, of the Greek alphabet, or actually an early version of it because there's a, this digamma is in between uh, epsilon, um, uh, between eta and zeta. And so you've got alpha is one, beta is two, gamma is three, and so on. But then once you get up to 10, you then have numbers... Uh, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, up to 90 are the next letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, and then you have symbols again carrying on for 100, 200, and so on. So you can write 444 uh, with, what's that, upsilon and mu and delta. 
So mu is 40 and delta is 4. Now, that worked, as I say, it's reasonably efficient for small numbers, but what are you going to do when you want to write you know, a million and 73? It's, it's tricky. And you run out of letters. I mean, even with these couple of extra letters that were dropped from the Greek alphabet uh, at various points, um, you, still, you start to run out of letters. So that's sort of problematic as well. Uh, why didn't they realize, oh, instead of writing mu for 40 and delta for, um, for 4, why can't we just you know, have a place system like the, the Babylonians had started to do um, and just have you know, just a delta meaning 4 and then you can put things in different places? Well, one reason, you know, the, the ancient Greeks were not stupid. They, they were doing great mathematics. It wasn't that they um, weren't able to think of this, I guess. It's more that they weren't using the written numbers to do calculations in the way we do now. Um, they, so they, somehow they didn't need to develop that technology yet because they were using counting boards, just like the, the Romans were as well. They had counting boards or they'd have an abacus. Um, so we do have some kind of archaeological evidence for, for what they were doing. There's a tablet called the Salamis tablet, which survives. And there are columns for different uh, denominations, I guess, of numbers. So the biggest one you would have would be talents and then mini, drachmas, obols, so uh, six obols and a drachma, and then you'd have fractions of obols, so that survives. But we also have references in writing to how these things were used. So you have these you know, little stones that you'd move around on the counting board, and they would have different values depending which column they were in. So Polybius, uh, second century BC or thereabouts, he's got this thing, he says, the courtiers who surround kings are exactly like the counters on the lines of a counting board. For depending on the will of the reckoner, they may be valued either at no more than a mere chalkos, which is, a, a, I think, an eighth of an obol, it's a very small amount, or else at a whole talent. So actually, the difference in those, it's something like 288,000 times uh, as much value if you're, a, if you're a talent compared. And so, you know, he's giving this description, everyone knows what he means, because everyone knows about counting boards. It's the same in Rome. Nobody is actually doing arithmetic. Nobody's trying to do uh, multiplication with Roman numerals. They are doing the calculations on the counting board with their little stones, and the Latin for that is calculi, hence the word calculate, and also calculus. They're moving them around. They are not trying to work out what, you know, how to multiply MDXCVII by, by XVL or something. You know, they're not trying to do that. So they, they, they aren't needing to grapple with this. Um, they also had expressions that, that tell us that they're using these things. So um, they had an expression, vocari aliquem ad calculos, um, which is meaning to settle up with someone, to kind of pay your debts. But what it literally means is to call someone to the calculating table or the counting board. So this is what they were doing. And so they, they were not held back in that sense by the, the cumbersome numbers, although they were a bit, as we'll see, it took longer to develop various technologies because of it. Okay, so those are kind of some of the old number systems. What about our numbers that we now use? Where did they come from? So they were developed in India. We don't know exact dates. We don't know for sure. There are various manuscripts that are found that are hard to date. Um, the manuscripts themselves may be older than the writing that's on them. Um, but what we do think happened is that there was an early Brahmi number system that originally would have had the numbers for 1 to 9 and then probably 10, 20, 30 and so on. But at some point, those later ones were dropped and we just kept the symbols for 1 to 9. And then crucially, um, 
getting round the problem faced by the early Babylonians, although they did invent a, a placeholder symbol at some point, at some point in the first few centuries AD, and I'm not confident as to when because no one is, this happened. <laughs> so a little dot started to be used for a placeholder. So you know, if you want to write 105 and you want to distinguish that from writing 15, you have to say there's no tens happening. So if on your counting board, that's fine. You can just leave a gap. But if you're writing it down, you need to signify that in some way. Otherwise, things get confusing. And this is what they did. They put a little dot, and that became our zero. So to begin with, it was just a placeholder. It wasn't a number in, in the same way that we've got uh, numbers that people were considering them. However, it later did start to become treated as a number in its own right. So you have people like Brahmagupta, the Indian uh, mathematician, around 730 AD, was giving rules for dealing with zero. So he, for example, said, any number subtracted from itself gives you zero. So this is the first beginnings of it being treated as a number like other numbers. It took a long time for that to, to happen. So I've, the title of this slide has got Arabic crossed out and Indian written in for Indian numerals. These are Indian numbers. So why do we call them Arabic numbers? Well, it's because they didn't come straight to us from India. What happened was that uh, Arabic mathematicians like Al-Khwarizmi uh, in the 9th century had translations from the Sanskrit texts into Arabic of various mathematical works, um, including works by Brahmagupta. And Al-Khwarizmi found out about these symbols and about how they were being used in calculation as well. It's not just the symbols, it's a new method of calculation that can be, that can be done that doesn't require counting uh, boards or, or an abacus. So these symbols were brought into Arab mathematics at about this time, and Al-Khwarizmi wrote about them. He wrote a book about these new symbols and the, and the Hindu mathematics. He's known to us as well because he also wrote about how to solve problems that involved what we now call algebra. And uh, this word here that features in the title of one of his books, Al-Jabr, is what we now, this is where we get our word algebra from. And Al-Khwarizmi's name himself, uh, that has become our word algorithm. So he's very influential uh, for, for mathematics in general and West, Western mathematics in particular. So he is working on these things. And he's, he's seeing the new Indian numerals. He's got them into Arabic. And from there, not directly, I think, from his work, but from the Arab world and from our interactions, um, so traders and merchants that are working in, in Italy and places like that are traveling and meeting along trade routes. They're talking to Arab traders and they are learning about these new numbers that are really efficient and you can do calculations with them and they are a great new piece of technology um, that are going to supplant the abacus and the counting board. It's really through trade that these, uh, these pieces of technology are transmitted. Al-Khwarizmi's work was translated into Latin. It, it was seen in the, in the West actually a lot earlier than, than when the numbers really caught on, but it really was through trade routes that these numbers spread. Um, and... One of the people who was spreading them was this chap, Leonardo of Pisa, who is better known as Fibonacci. And he, his, his father was a merchant. He learned about these new numbers and about how you can express any number in terms of them and how you can calculate with them directly without using uh, any kind of board or abacus. 
And he wrote about them in a book called Liber Abaci in 1202. I've quoted from it here. You don't need to be able to speak Latin to get the gist of this. But he's saying, you know, here are the nine Indian figures, the nine figures of the Indians. And he writes them down, 9876543321. But I like, you know, these are written probably as they would have been seen in an Arabic uh, book, because, of course, in Arabic you read from right to left, and so that they would be in ascending order then. He's preserved that way of writing, even though it's a little bit counterintuitive to write them in descending order, but that must be why he did it, just sort of without thinking about it. So he's written down these nine numbers, but just notice, he says, with these nine figures and with this sign, zero, so it's not a number like the others, it's a different thing. It's got the nine figures and this sign, zero, which the Arabs call Zephyr. So Zephyr, that gives us our word cipher. Um, that's an old word for zero. And from cipher, we get ciphering, which is an old word for kind of doing arithmetic or, or calculations. So with these nine figures and the sign zero, which the Arabs call Zephyr, we can write whatever number we like. And then he gives some examples of what, how to do that. So this is, you know, here it is happening. Now, these amazing numbers which allow you to do calculations by writing them down and without using, you know, little stones. We're not doing, using our calculi to calculate. We're using our cipher to do ciphering, or algorithmus is another word for this new way of calculating. They spread, but it took a while for them. To, it wasn't just like everyone said, oh yes, this is good, we're going to immediately adopt this. There was resistance, it took a long time. If you are happy and your friend is happy and you trust each other that you've got your financial calculations are done in the way that you're familiar with, with the symbols you're familiar with, it takes a while for that trust to be gained for a new system. So it did take time. And you know we have instances like in 1299, the, uh, the Florence City Council banned writing things in these Indian Arabic numbers in financial records. You had to write it out in words. The worry um, was not that they didn't think they expressed numbers, but that it was too easy to tamper with them, potentially. You could turn this weird zero thing into a six or a nine just by adding a little tail or a, or a hook. And so, you know, potentially you could tamper with financial records. So you had to write things out in full in words, just as, you know, on the rare occasions nowadays where we write a check, you do that exact thing for that same reason, that, that you want a, a, a clearer record of what these things are. So... You know, that those numbers took a while to be accepted. Um, there are various woodcuts and books published about using this new system, how to do ciphering. Uh, here is arithmetic personified. She's sort of disdainfully looking away from the counting board, and she's pointing to the wonderful new uh, Indian Arabic numbers here. This is the way forward. There they are, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then 10 and 100 and, and 200 and so on. This is the new system. And it did catch on, but it took a while. And particularly, we could say that, or notice that this zero, you know, you saw when Fibonacci introduced it, it was nine figures and this weird zero thing. Zero really was treated with suspicion, with caution for an awfully long time. Um, centuries, really. Even by, the, by Shakespeare's time, you know, you've got in King Lear, uh, there's, a, there's a scene where King Lear, you know, has been brought low and his fool is taunting him and he's saying, you know, thou art an O without a figure. So you're, you're nothing or worthless. You're an O, a zero with no figure attached 
you haven't got a number attached to you, so you don't mean it. You know, if, if there's a number attached to a zero, then it might turn one into ten. But on its own, it's, it's nothing. I mean, that's, that's okay, that's true, but it's the point that he's saying you're without a figure. So the zero somehow isn't a figure. It's not a number like the others. And it, so this view persisted for a long time. Uh, and we see that even when people are talking about trying to solve algebraical problems, still for a long time, even when they're doing quite complicated algebra, that requires the use of things like even the square root of negative numbers, which is a you know, difficult concept, even when they're doing that, they're still not happy about zero, and they're still not happy even about negative numbers. So it really takes a long time for these things to get acceptance. So we've seen where our numbers come from and how this new technology helped our number symbols to be, to be adopted. But there, of course, are lots of other mathematical symbols, algebraical symbols, you know, the plus sign and things like this. We've mentioned the equal sign, and we'll talk about Robert Record a bit more in due course. But let's have a little tour of, of algebra. Now, the beginnings of algebra were what is called rhetorical algebra. Everything was expressed in words. And this is true, you know, the Babylonians, they had things that we might now call algebraic problems. And it would be, I have a length and a width and the, the length and the width add together to make this number. And the length and the width, uh, the difference between the length and the width is its other number, find the length and the width. So they were, it was all done in words. This is a particularly beautiful example. So in, in uh, India, the tradition was for um, you know, Sanskrit writing to be done in poetry. So you have lots of people who are mathematicians and poets and astronomers. It's all you know, part of the same uh, intellectual thing, really. This is a beautiful problem. Uh, this is by Bhaskara in a book that he dedicated to his daughter, Lilivati, in the 12th century. And you know, wouldn't it be lovely <laughs> if, if our algebra problems were like this? So it's about a swarm of bees, and a fifth part of them comes to rest on one flower, and then three times the difference between that and the third of it uh, flew to another flower, and then there's one bee alone remained in the air, attracted by the perfume of a jasmine and a bloom. Tell me, beautiful girl, how many bees were in the swarm? So this is a, a very poetic description of a problem that can then, it's all in words, and it, the solution is given also in words. So this, yes, it's algebra, but it's, there are no symbols yet uh, involved. So it's not symbolic algebra, it's, it's rhetorical algebra. Now there's, there's an intermediate step, um, which is where you start to maybe use a few abbreviations in what you're doing. Um, and that's got the very jazzy name of syncopated algebra. And that's a kind of a, an intermediate step, um, which is not, you know, it's not purely abstract, but we're some, somewhere along the way. And an example of this is in the work of Diophantus. So he was a Greek mathematician working in Ish, the third century AD, and he wrote a very influential book called Arithmetica, uh, which uh, you may happen to know that it was... Uh, in Fermat's copy of Arithmetica that he wrote that famous marginal note about having a, a wonderful theorem and the margin is too small to contain it. So, you know, Arithmetica was used for a long time. It's uh, a really a, gr a great achievement of early mathematics. He did use some abbreviations, maybe one or two symbols. He had a symbol for, for minus, uh, I believe. But it was basically words with some abbreviations. And there's a problem about that if you're writing in Greek in ancient Greek, because we've seen that the symbols for numbers were just letters of the alphabet. So alpha is one, beta is two, and so on. Um, so if you then want to start using symbols for variables, letters for variables like we would now, that's going to be problematic. 
example, uh, he was looking at problems about um, the squares and the cubes of things, all very geometrically based. So a square, x squared, which he wouldn't have written, is, you think of it as a square of side x. And something cubed is a cube of side that thing. So it's all kind of couched in geometry, but there is some algebra happening. It's still all in words. If you want to write a, a, a symbol, an abbreviation for cube, the cube of something, well, the word is kubos, and the first letter of kubos is kappa. But kappa is the number 20. So that's going to be very confusing, because if you look at it, you won't know whether it's 20 or, or it's the cube. So then what do you do? Well, maybe use the first two letters, kappa, upsilon. And then that's problematic because that actually represents the number 20,400. So you can see this is really difficult. And somehow all of these things are cut from the same cloth. They are all using letters, alphabet letters, which also mean numbers. And now they also have to mean something else as well. It's very difficult to sort of parse an expression like that. And this helps to explain why it, it, wasn't, it didn't really catch on kind of using symbols because the symbols were having to do too much work, the same symbols. Uh, what eventually seemed to have happened is that you have an expression, a little thing like this, which is kappa, and then sort of a superscript, little upsilon on the top, and that's your abbreviation for the cube, kubos, or cube. Um, so because of all these issues around this and, and abbreviations perhaps not really helping you much more than just writing in words, writing the, your, your mathematics and your algebra in words persisted and carried on for at least the next thousand years. And the next, the sort of beginnings of progress on this are in Renaissance Italy, where you've got people like Cardano. So he's very famous. Who uh, He's written a book called Ars Magna, and in that book, he explains how to solve any cubic equation. So, you know, we at school, we learn the quadratic formula for solving quadratic equations, things with x squareds in them, uh, basically. The cubic equation, it's a bit harder to solve, but it, it was worked out uh, at around this time. There were partial solutions given by others and lots of arguing about who'd come up with what first. But Cardano did put how to solve any cubic um, in this book, Ars Magna of 1545. Now, it's a great achievement. And it's even more of a great achievement when you realize he still he doesn't like zero, he doesn't like negative numbers. And because of that, it wasn't just one cubic equation. So if we were nowadays, we, when we try and solve you know, a quadratic equation, what we do is our first step before we do anything else, we bring everything over to the left-hand side and equals naught on the right. Well, the equal sign hadn't been invented yet. He didn't like zero, and he didn't like any negative numbers. So you can't do that. You know, and, you know, you're not even writing down equations at all. Um, you're, you're saying in words that things are equal to other things. So just an example here I've written that something like... An expression like, again, not the notation that would be used, but something like x squared plus ax, you know, the number plus some multiple of its root is a constant. That's a, viewed as a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of problem to solve from something that looks like the number is equal to some multiple of its root plus a, a, another number. They were thought and classified as different things. And, and with, with cubic equations, you can imagine there's many more different, different subtypes of cubic. So this meant for, you know, made for much longer descriptions of how to solve all of these things. But it was done, in spite of the suspicion around even zero and negative numbers. Never mind imaginary numbers like the square root of minus one. Geometrical arguments were, were largely what were being used. 
And, you know, Cardano, then that made it very difficult to do anything with, with equations where you might have higher powers, like something to the power four, because that doesn't make, no, there's no fourth dimension, of course. Now we, we suspect that there might be. But more importantly, we don't insist that anything involving a fourth power is somehow has to be corresponding to a geometrical thing. Um, we, we think differently nowadays. So this terminology and, and the kind of the mindset, amazing though the achievement was, there are ways in which you know, we hadn't seen further at that stage. So the next steps, really, we start to get this one or two symbols, but really they're really coming from abbreviations. Um, the next steps, really, I would say, uh, are coming in Germany in the, the later part of the 16th century, where you have writers like Michael Stiefel and Christoph Rudolf, and they, so this word cos, I've got there, and the Cossack art, so the Italian word for unknown is cosa, and that became cos, so uh, Rudolf's book, De Cos, is about finding the unknown, like doing algebra. And in, in England, this was called the Cossack art often. So Michael Stiefel, uh, here he is, he was the first to use uh, in print the symbols plus and minus for addition and subtraction. As you can see there before then, um, you'd get expressions like this one. So what's this thing? This looks very difficult for us to read. Again, the problem is everything looks the same somehow, well, except we now at least have different symbols for the numbers. So they're easy to pick out. So this is one lot of the zensus, that's the number, we're trying the unknown that we're trying to find, pu plus, p for plus, five lots of r, what's r? It's the radix, the root. So this is the, the root of the zensus that we're trying to find. Already implicit in this is that there is a root, uh, and this is sort of assumed to be a positive number. And so we are, with the notation, we're accidentally not allowing ourselves really to consider other possibilities, like quadratic equations have two roots usually. Um, M minus six. So that's what things were looking like to begin with. Then a few years later, you know, you get different editions of books and the, the, the notation gradually changes with the different editions of uh, Decos, for example. Then within a few years, that expression would become something like this. So one lot of Q, the square, plus five lots of N, the number, minus six. So that's, to our modern eyes, much easier to read. And I think, you know, to everyone's eyes, because you're starting to just get different things. The operations are symbols. You can spot what they are. You can see what the numbers are. We don't yet, though, it's not easy to just see by glancing at this that Q and N are related in any way. So that it doesn't help our intuition. So the final kind of step uh, in this progression is that we start to see explicitly, look, here is an A and here is A times A. And they are, that's that number. It's one single number and it's, it's there, but it's also over here squared. So this it makes it much easier to, it doesn't sort of, get rid of at the starting gates the possibility that A might be you know, negative or something like this, or even imaginary. Um, this is a better notation in the sense that it, it's more amenable to generalization and abstraction. No, so there was some good progress here. I will just say before moving on, another bit of uh, development that happened in Germany at this time was with square roots. So the square root symbol was coming in around this time, and it appeared... I, I believe first in Germany, our modern square root system. But the notation for cube roots was terrible. <laughs> let's, let's see if we can see it on the slide. So the, the cube root symbol 
you take your square root, but because it's cube root and cube is three, you have three little wiggles. <laughs> Very hard to see in a handwritten text. And then, okay, the fourth root, does that have four little wiggles? No, it does not. It has two little wiggles. Why? Because it's the square root of the square root. So this is very confusing. And, you know, if you get to something like the 12th root, well, that's the cube root of the square root of the square root. So is that going to have five wiggles? And then what's the fifth root going to have? It's just impossible. And, you know, it totally prevents you from being able to talk about, you know, the nth root of anything. You just can't do it. You just have to, how many wiggles am I going to write? So something like this, they stop progress being made. Whereas the good notation allows progress to be made. And we're going to see that now. Um, with the start of something which later becomes an exponent notation. So thing x to the 5 or something like that. So kind of a precursor of this was Bombelli in 1579. So what's he writing here? Well, we saw when we start to be able to have, you know, a and a times a and a times a times a. Of course, being humans, we would very soon start to say, how many a's have I got and can I just write that down as a number? And this is what Bombelli is doing. Um, unfortunately, the notation sort of obscures what the, what the unknown is. It's hidden a little bit. So he's got lots of expressions like this in his book, a whole page full of examples, really, of, of how this thing works. And what is this thing? He's not saying 4 plus 7 is 11. It's not that. That little kind of curved line underneath, that's representing the unknown. So what he's actually saying, we'd now write it as x to the 4 times x to the 7 equals x to the 11. He's introducing that, the fact that we know about powers now, that when you multiply powers, you add those coefficients together. So he, he gives lots of examples of this, but the issue here is that, it, again, it, it doesn't allow for you to do things that you might later want to do. Um, it's, not, you know, it's not his fault. He it did the trick for what he wanted to do, but it's difficult then. You've got this unknown that you haven't got a letter for, and so what if you wanted to have two unknowns or something? What if you wanted to talk about something like a graph that we talk about now, y equals x squared, you know, the, the parabola graph that we uh, perhaps drew at one point in our lives? You can't do that with this notation. But happily, Descartes comes along uh, in his book Geometry in 1637, and he introduces and gives us the exponent notation that we use today. And actually, this book... I mean, yeah, it's in French, it's not in Latin, it's in French. The mathematical expressions really do look quite modern. You know, they look like what, how we might write things now, mostly. Uh, mostly. So he writes, he's got things like, he defines the a squared as a times a, a cubed, a times a times a, and so on to infinity. I, you know, he, you can carry this on as long as you like. Another really crucial thing about this book is he's, he's stepping away from the idea that, you know, something cubed has to involve an actual cube in three dimensions. Instead, he's, he talks about curves that are, you know, they're two-dimensional things often, and, and you express them in terms of relationships between two variables. So that y equals x squared, not how he would write it, not how he would write it, but um, that, that kind of relationship between two variables that you can plot on the plane allows you to move away and so then there's nothing to stop you writing y equals x to the five you know and looking at that you don't have to be thinking it's all five-dimensional or something and, and then dismissing it as being beyond nature as Cardano would have done so as you know there's a lot to talk about in this book but he gives us the exponent notation another thing he gives us is the convention of having variables being at the end of the alphabet. So x, y, z, those are variables, and constants terms being at the start of the alphabet, a, b, and c. 
So, you know, when we did the quadratic formula in school, we learned how to solve ax squared plus bx plus c equals zero. That convention is from Descartes. Now, the idea of viewing curves as sort of dynamic things that were expressing relationships between, uh, you know, your y and your x or other variables, and somehow they're moving, and then you could have a rate of change of them. That is what laid the, the groundwork, really, for calculus to come into existence. Now, I'm not going to talk about calculus, really. I'll give you one minute just to show you uh, some notation. And, you know, Newton and Leibniz, of course, battled it out over who uh, had priority, who had come up with the idea first. The notation that uh, comes from the sort of Newtonian outlook is not, in my view, as good as the notation that comes from the Leibnizian outlook. Um, so if you're, if you're trying to do what, what Newton might have written, so this dot means you differentiate once. Uh, don't worry if you don't know what that is. We're, we're moving on in a moment. Um, two dots mean you do it twice. And so if you want to do it eight times, you just have to have, you know, a horrible panoply of dots above your x and you have to count how many there are and you can miss some with an ink spot or something. So this is, becomes unwieldy. Uh, whereas the, this notation that we sort of developed from what Leibniz was doing, where it looks like fractions, that actually it fits in well with how differentiation and its reverse integration seem to work. So that's good. Um, and you also, you can then see immediately how many times you're doing this process. So there's an eight, do it eight times. That's much more easy to see than the eight dots. And you can also give yourself the latitude to, to do it n times if you want to. So you know, many people would, would uh, take the view, and I'm one of them, that, that this kind of Leibnizian notation is, is superior, uh, although there are places for, for the other. So you know, we've seen how the development of certain notations can allow new ideas to emerge, and they're helpful, sort of a seedbed for new concepts. Um, you know, once you have the concept of x to the n, well, n has been a positive whole number, positive integer, um, x, x squared, and so on, but could you have x to a, a non-whole number power? Could you have x to the a half, maybe? Could you raise it to a, some other power that isn't a whole number? Well, if you remember that, take you know, an x, the square root of x, times the square root of x equals x. So square root of x squared equals x. And since we know about the addition rule of exponents, um, maybe we start to use a notation x to the power a half for the square root. So you can make these kind of, you can generalize a bit and start to use this notation more broadly. And of course, understanding that um, multiplying, what you do, you add the exponents. That's a way of turning multiplication into addition. And this is really what underlies, although Napier wouldn't have thought of it like this, um, it kind of what underlies the eventual development of things like logarithms. So, you know, this, this innocent bit of initial progress that makes it a bit easier, but then leads to whole new avenues of, of, of thought. And actually, there's a quote I'm going to read you from, from Ernst Mach in 1895. He said, the student of mathematics often finds it hard to throw off the uncomfortable feeling that his science in the person of his pencil surpasses him in intelligence. In other words, you, you come up with some bit of notation and then, or some new bit of exploration, and then you find that it's leading you off into all sorts of new places. It goes much further than you thought, linked with other bits of mathematics. So this is kind of an often thing, slightly disconcerting and wonderful thing about mathematics. Um, okay, now, I want to give you a little 
further anecdote about how the language we use for notation and symbols can tell us about where that uh, mathematics has come from. So we've seen with our numbers, they started in India. Another thing that started in India was, well, trigonometry. So where does this word sign come from? It's a, it's a lovely story, and this archer is going to tell us the story. So the Indian mathematicians who were writing in Sanskrit, um, they wanted to explain what they meant by sign. So we know sign in a triangle, it's uh, opposite over hypotenuse, right? The sign of that angle. So if you imagine here this guy, imagine this being an arc of a circle. It's not quite, but it's pretty much. And there's his bowstring there. And then when he pulls back to, to fire an arrow, we get a, a, a drawing a bit like this. And this angle here, what's the sign of that angle? It's the opposite over the hypotenuse. So the opposite bit is this bowstring, right? Or, you know, half the bowstring. And so if you look, have that diagram in mind, it's really natural that the word for sign was the word for bowstring. Uh, jiva in Sanskrit. My pronunciation is not guaranteed to be correct. So this is how it first started. And then, just as with the numbers, these works found their way into the Arab world and were translated, but there was no word for sign in Arabic. And so what happened was they used the word jiva, which didn't have a meaning in Arabic in its own right. It now just came to mean sign, and it became jiva in Arabic. So that isn't a word already in Arabic. And so then what happened was it was a bit sort of corrupted over time into something that was a word. Um, and that word was jabe, which means cavity. Okay, so then fast forward a little while, the Arab texts come to the Western world and get translated into Latin, and now the word cavity is translated into Latin. What is that in Latin? It's sinus, like we have sinuses, you know, in our, in our skulls. We have uh, a sinus, and so then in English, that's sign, right? So this is this word, and you can see originally the lovely bowstring analogy, and it's traveled across all these languages to get to us, which is just a nice story there of... of some of these trigonometric terms. Okay, we're going to, we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, I want to briefly mention Robert Record again, because I said I would. Um, he's a great guy. He's a Tudor, um, working for the Tudors, born about 1510. Um, he was a big proponent of explaining things clearly so people can understand them. Um, and he wrote in English, you know, he wrote in the vernacular, he didn't write in Latin. He wrote several books. Um, the one we want to talk about is called The Whetstone of Wit. It's how to sharpen your wits by doing algebra, which is always a good plan. But he had views about, you know, the importance of explaining things so that people who are in charge of making the rules actually have a basic grasp and understanding of science and mathematics, which we probably all can agree with uh, still being a challenge. So he's said, oh, in how miserable case is that realm where the ministers and interpreters of the laws are destitute of all good sciences, which are the keys of the laws. How can they either make good laws or maintain them that lack the true knowledge whereby to judge them? Yes, indeed. <laughs> so he, he then, in his book, The Whetstone of Wit, he was explaining in English for the first time, really, a lot of these rules about the Cossack art, algebra, how to take square roots, how do we understand about powers and things like this. He brought a lot of words into English. So he was reading books like by the books by Seifel and uh, Rudolf that we mentioned. He read French, Latin, uh, German, Italian, Greek, a bit of Arabic. He was very widely read. And he brought words that he thought chose the best words from all these things. He brought them into English. And if there wasn't a good word, he made a word. 
So he gave us the words binomial and commensurable, for example. I can't quite stop myself mentioning some words that didn't stick. So what do you think these words mean? Well, absurd numbers, that's what he called negative numbers, still the old prejudice, they're absurd. Um, Gemoa lines, so that has the same root as uh, Gemo or Gemini. Twin lines, that means parallel lines. And his decision about calling the equal sign uh, as a pair of parallel lines, he said, you know, these are because no two things can be more equal than two parallel lines. So that was why he, you know, when he wrote in the whetstone of wit, I'm going to use this sign, this is why he said he'd chosen it. Uh, no like triangles, we call them scalene now. None of the sides are alike. And sink angles, I like this one. <laughs> sink angles, that's, that's pentagons, um, for obvious reasons, I guess. Um, he also had a brilliant bit of notation that I want to tell you because it holds the record in the Oxford English Dictionary for the longest, no, for the word in English with the most Zs in it. So here we go. So remember, we had zensus earlier, um, meaning the number. So zenzika means the square. And zenzi zenzika obviously then means the fourth power, the square of the square. So then, of course, you have zenzi zenzi zenzika, which is the eighth power. And take a big run up. Zenzi 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 zenzika, which means the 16th power. So you know, those are lovely, and I think we should bring them back into the classroom immediately and find the zenzi 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 zenzika of things. So those are some words that perhaps didn't catch up. But of course, his legacy uh, is the equal sign. That's what we remember him mostly for, this young man from Tenby. And I, I say this is the world's oldest equation, right? Why do I say that? I mean, of course, people were doing algebra. I'm not saying that you know, people weren't solving things. But what's an equation? It's something equals something. You can't do that if you don't have the equal sign. So this equation, this was the first use of it in his book, The Whetstone of Wit, 1557. Here it is. So if you can solve this, you can tell all your friends and family that you have solved the world's oldest equation. Um, this symbol is the unknown. We'd now write x. These, this just means the number, so a constant. So translated, you know, we'd now write this as 14x plus 15 equals 71. So I'm sure you have solved it in your head already. If we just bring the 15 over to the right-hand side, take it away, we get 14x equals 56. And so x is 4, which I like because 4 is my favourite number. So this, we can, you know, I'm saying this is the world's oldest equation. So that's Robert Record. Um, so I wanted to finish this part before I spend like five minutes right at the end with uh, just a little bit of mathematical fun with language. I wanted to mention just a couple more symbols you might be interested in. And to make the point, it changes and it often takes time for a choice to be made, a convention to be established as to what our symbol is. So these symbols here, these five symbols were all used um, before 1930 to represent a particular number set. And that number set is what we now call Z, it's the integers, so the whole numbers. Um, that Z for Zahlen, which is the German for number, that was chosen by a group of French mathematicians uh, in about 1940. They um, got together and decided they wanted to um, have a series of books that were going to describe the elements of mathematics, and that's what the series was called, and they wrote uh, individually anonymously, but under the, the pseudonym Bourbaki. So these are very influential books, and they showed they said it's high time we have a symbol for this that we all agree. And this is the one they chose, and this is what stuck. So again, you know, only in 1940. It feels like it's been around forever, but not actually within the last century it was finally chosen. Uh, another thing is I want to mention this wonderful equation. So this is often cited as the most beautiful equation in mathematics. It combines the very basic building blocks of numbers, 0 and 1. It combines pi, uh, 
a very important mathematical constant, e, another very important mathematical constant, and i, the square root of minus 1, with which you can express the solution of any uh, polynomial equation. These things, there's no reason to imagine they would be linked together, and yet they are with this beautiful equation. So this is a, a fantastic equation. So when did we get these symbols, e, i, and pi? So, well, um, Johann Christoph Sturm in 1689 um, was the first to use a letter um, for um, the well-known mathematical constant. Now, he used e, um, <laughs> but the well-known mathematical constant he was using a letter for was what we now call pi. So I love that, <laughs> because the first letter used for pi was actually e. And what was the first letter used for e? Uh, it was b. So if we were to follow historical precedent, this equation would be written b to the ie plus 1 equals 0, which uh, <laughs> just looks very strange to our modern eyes. So we don't always use the first bit of notation for things. Um, just to go back to this, the, the, you know, what we now use, I want to sort of point out that you know, this is a beautiful equation. It belongs to the whole world. If we were to try and pick out which nationalities, like it's DNA, well, E and I, they are due to Euler, who was the first to use those letters for those, uh, property, those quantities. Uh, equals, that's Robert Record, he's Welsh. Pi was first used by another Welshman, William Jones, in uh, 1706, I think. It's the first letter of the word periphery. Um, and plus, we've seen that's a German uh, origination, and then zero and one are Indian. So you could, you could say, you know, this is 28% Swiss and 28% Welsh, 28% Indian and 14% German. But of course, we don't do that. You know, mathematics belongs to us all, and this equation is 100%. It belongs to mathematics and to everybody. So, you know, we obviously can't talk about every symbol, but I hope I've shown you a few of these. I just want to spend a few minutes now at the end being a little bit frivolous, you know, it's my last lecture of the year. I want to give you some homework to keep you going until my, my next lecture starts up again in October. So I'm going to tell you what the incomprehensibility graph is. It's the kind of thing that gets mathematicians a bad name, but it's a bit of fun. Um, which languages are the hardest? Very important question if you're learning languages. So in English, we have an expression. If we don't understand something, it's Greek to me. It goes back to Shakespeare. Um, but if you're French... Things aren't Greek to you, they're Hebrew to you. That's uh, first quoted, I think, in Moliere. Um, so, obviously, this means that Greek is harder than English, but Hebrew is harder than French. And you can start making a graph of this, uh, a directed graph, so you have an arrow from a language to the thing that it doesn't understand. Okay, so we can start doing this thing, and we can try and find out what are the hardest languages, or is there a unique hardest language? So we've got our English and French going to Greek and Hebrew. Stumbling block, potentially, English... We can also say, if we don't understand something, it's double Dutch, right? We don't understand it. So we also ought to have an arrow to Dutch. But it turns out not understanding Dutch is really just a stepping stone on the way to not understanding Greek, because the Dutch don't understand Latin. And if you're in Latin, you can say, uh, it can't be read, it's Greek. So actually, we end up at Greek both ways. What about Hebrew? Well, both Greek and Hebrew don't understand Chinese. So we get to Chinese. And what, what do, does Chinese not understand? Well, there's a lovely expression, heavenly script. It's heavenly script to me. So the writing of heaven is the ultimate incomprehensible language. Now, I've put something in the transcript about this. There's, there are people who have drawn much bigger graphs and taken this much further. You can explore this idea further if you wish, but it's quite a fun idea. Not really mathematical, but it sort of looks a bit mathsy. Another mathsy thing, which I've called numerolinguistics. Um, what's the next number in this sequence? 
84 11 6 3 5. If you're watching this lecture on recording, you should pause this now um, and do your due diligence and try and work out what the next number is. For us here, it will help you to see the words written down in English. So let's look at this 84 uh, E I G H T Y dash F O U R. 11 characters are needed. 11. How many letters in 11? Six. How many letters in six? Three. How many letters in three? Five. So the next number is, how many letters in five? Four. How many letters in four? Oh, it's four. That's interesting. It's four again. Ah, oh, my favourite number is four. Of course, it's fate. Um, let's try starting at a different point. So there you can start with 84, you get to four, and then you're in a loop. If you start anywhere else at all, any other number, you end up at four, and then you're stuck. You stay there. So we can draw another kind of graph, the graph of English, following this pattern, you know, a function of the number, it's the number of characters required, I'm counting hyphens, I don't count spaces, that's my rule, you can make your own rule if you prefer, you end up in the same place, you end up at four with English. Well, there are lots of languages. This is the graph for English, everything is four, the best number. Uh, in Italian, all roads lead to tre, the word for three has three letters. In Danish... There are three numbers like this. There are three fixed points. Two, three, and four all have that respective number of letters. Now, look at French. This is brilliant. So, un has de letters, and de has cat letters, and cat has six letters, and six has trois letters, and trois has, wait, trois has cinq letters, and cinq, five, has quatre letters, we've got a cycle. It's fantastic. So in French, there aren't any fixed points, there's just a cycle. Now, so your homework is going to be take some languages you like and that you know, or even that you don't know, what happens in your favourite language. Now, point of caution, how far up do you have to go before you've captured all the behaviour? Can you, for example, go to one of the many websites that tell you all the numbers uh, um, in different languages from 1 to 10? Is it safe to stop at 10? Glad you asked. No, it is not. Adinatset in Russian, that's the Russian for 11, has 11 letters. You can't stop at 10. So be careful, you might need to go up a bit higher. So here's your homework, keep you going. Um, what's a safe testing threshold? I've been going up to 100 in the, number, in the uh, languages I've looked at. That seems to be pretty safe, but you know, what's, what's a good uh, place to stop? What's the highest fixed point? So four is a fixed point in English. You always get back to four. What's the highest one you can find in any language? Is it 11? I'm really unsure whether anyone is going to be able to tweet me saying they can beat Zulu. Because in Zulu, uh, 27, as of course you know, is Amashumi Amabili Nesikombisa. That has 27 letters. Can you beat that? I don't know. Maybe you can. Um, and then can you find a longer cycle than the one we found in French that has four? Uh, four in it. So that's a little bit of fun to keep you occupied until my next lecture in October, which is on mathematics and art. And then my second year of, of Gresham lectures, the first few lectures are going to be on the many, many links between mathematics and art. You can watch all the past lectures. You can sign up for upcoming ones at the Gresham website. Or if you follow me and Gresham on Twitter, of course, we'll let you know about upcoming events. But I will stop there. Thank you very much for listening. Professor Hart, thank you very much for a really, really interesting lecture. We've got a few questions from the online audience. Sure. I'm not going to be able to get to all the questions, but we will try. We'll try to Great. do as many as possible. Okay. Um, I read somewhere that 
when we were trading with other countries in the world by sale, mathematical puzzles would be exchanged with various mathematicians because even though they couldn't speak the other's language, they could all understand the math's symbols. Is that true? Well, so I think we've seen that there have been lots of different symbols used over time. It had helped, of course, that for a long time, learned people would speak or write in Latin, so that helped people of different nationalities communicate with each other, certainly within Europe. Um, there are examples of puzzles and games that you see in different places, even if we can't necessarily trace the... The, the pattern, we don't have records of, of them travelling, but there, there's a puzzle about 17 camels, for example, that crops up all over South Asia, and, you know, this has clearly been passed on between people. So I think that has happened, um, but probably, you know, various languages that have been the lingua franca at various times have helped with that, yeah. Okay. Um, we do time in base 60. Is that related to the Babylonian system? It absolutely is, yes. So the Babylonian system with base 60, it wasn't just the counting system, their, their currency was, was measured in 60s, and it came from the kind of 360 days-ish in a year. Now, the Babylonians were much better astronomers than, than, than anyone who would think that they really were 360 days, but what they said was there kind of had been 360 days, and then in the ancient world there were various myths about um, how those extra few days came in. So the ancient uh, Egyptians had a myth that um, the sky goddess won those five extra days in a bet with the moon god Khonsu, and so there were five extra days, but they somehow were extra intercalary days and were not part of the months of 30 days. The 60-ness and the 360 days in a year, which of course also gave rise to our 360 degrees in a circle, which we still have, and divided into each degree into minutes and seconds, 60 is a great number because you can divide it up in so many ways. It's the smallest number that is divisible by one, two, three, four, five, and six. So that makes fractions much easier. You're much more likely to find a fraction that doesn't, you know, that, that exists than in our base 10, where even a third is very difficult to write, you know, as a decimal or something. So 60 is a good number, but it does go back to the Babylonians, yeah. Great. Um, I've got another person who's saying, numbers of quantities are our first record of numerical symbols, the purpose being to levy city tax on goods for sale. Is this true or false? Oh, golly. <laughs> the first ever record. I, the honest answer is I don't know the, you know the first ever, and we probably won't know because things are being dug out of the ground all the time, but certainly I have read that even the earliest writing at all is numbers. So these things are there right from the off. You know, even if it's just making marks very simply, crudely, one, two, three, four, five, you know, just marks in a, in a piece of clay, they are really with us right from the beginning of any kind of writing, yeah. You spoke um, at the beginning of the lecture about Voyager. Um, were the plaques on the NASA launches in forms other than audible slash visible to humans? So they were put onto a record um, and so you can, you can put information onto a record, you know, if you have a, I guess the, the most recent bit of technology might be the CD that still does this. Um, and there were instructions put onto that golden record as to how it was to be used. And the very first picture was um, just of a circle. And that would allow you to realise you, you were doing it right. Because, of course, you know, you couldn't, a random bit of thing is not going to be a circle. So every civilization would recognise that. So they, there were instructions on how to read it. But it was a, it was a record. Yeah, so it had music and pictures. OK. Um, this is a, a big question. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are mathematical symbols free of white colonialism influence? Hopefully, yes. But in case they are not, what would be the alternative way forward? That's, yeah, that's, that's a really great question. I think usually over time, we have you know, converged on eventually the best, you know, the thing that's convenient, the things that are most powerful, the, the exponent notation, that makes sense and it works. And it, it, it can take time. And I think what can happen is that things are misnamed. And so you saw, you know, the Arabic numerals were really Indian numerals. I've seen other examples where... So I remember reading about this Nigerian mathematician in the 18th century, uh, Ibn Muhammad, I think his name was, and he came up with this method for constructing magic squares. But we don't know it by that name. It is now known as, you know, and I don't like this really, but it... I read about it as being called the Siamese method, so from the ancient, you know, the old word Siam, um, for modern day it's Thailand, isn't it Siam now? Um, but this was, it was because this method was not really paid any attention to until this French diplomat who happened to be in Siam um, found out about it and he wrote it down and so then it's called the Siamese method, right? But, it, you know, those kinds of things where things are mislabeled according to the, like, dead white guy who wrote them down because he got them from someone else... You know, we've got to be careful about those things. So I think ultimately, probably the, the, you know, the best symbols win out. But we have to be careful about how we, who we credit them to. And yeah. that's why it's really important to study the history of these things. Um, there's another international question. Uh, how did South American civilizations count? Is this the topic of another lecture? Yes, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I did not talk about, you know, the, the Chinese methods, the Japanese methods there. So, yeah, there, there, I have got quite a few links in the transcript, and there are some good books about um, this topic. Um, but yeah, there are, there, I, I don't want to make a mistake, but I believe there was a base 20 system that was used. So not base 60, not base 10, but base 20. Um, and that's a, you know, a very interesting and, and quite sophisticated uh, counting method or number system. But yeah, it, it, sheer <laughs> crunch of time, I thought I had to, uh, to refine it a little bit. But yeah, all over the world, there were counting systems. Here's another interesting one. Um, why was our old money system not based on 10, but on 12 pennies in the shilling and 20 shillings in the pound? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so I think the 12-ness, it's, it's the same thing as for 60s. It's much easier to divide 12. It, 12's got a lot of factors. So you can have half and a quarter and a third. You know, um, We have had, had thrupney bits and things like this. So you could divide up a shilling into much, many more things easily than you can divide 10 pence up into or five pence so that was you know when we were doing all our arithmetic in our heads that made life much easier as it became less important to be able to do everything in your head you know when we had cash registers and things that motivation for dividing things into 12 lessened so yeah that's that's probably why we switched decimal eventually yeah it's really interesting um and another money question which culture assigned money symbols um the, the euro, the pound sign, the dollar sign, to, to its to numbers? Where did, where did that begin? So, so having, yeah, the, those signs, I mean, they will have come in, I guess, if you're just, you know, within your own culture, you know what money you're using, but as soon as you start trading with other cultures, you need to say, what am I measuring? So um, I know there's a long discussion on the dollar sign in Florian Kajori's book, uh, about, about mathematical symbols. The pound sign comes from, so the Latin word for pound, uh, libra, right, is it, an L, so it's a sort of deformed L, our pound sign. 
euro is obviously to do with Europe, so it's an E. Um, so these things do develop, and they need to develop when you've got, you know, imagine being in a market and someone's writing how much things are in dollars and how much they are in pounds, how much they are in francs and lira and all of those kind of things. You need a symbol to say what, what money you're using. Professor Hart, thank you so much, and thank you for your, your generosity in addressing the questions. Um, thank you to our audience for attending, and I would like to encourage you to come back tonight and listen to our Professor of the Environment, who will be giving a lecture at 6 p.m. called A Just and Rights-Based Framework for Nature. So we hope to see you later on. Thanks very much. <laughs>